Last week we started the book of Daniel. Today we're going to continue on. We have a lot to cover. God had ordained that the kingdom of Judah would be invaded by Babylon, Jerusalem and the temple destroyed, and its people taken into exile, all because of the sinfulness of the Israelite nation. They turned their back on him, and he turned them over to a foreign enemy as he promised he would. But God is nowhere near done with his people. The Messiah has yet to be born to that line, which is what had been promised. We have a lot to cover today. I want to go ahead and pray and then dive into our passage. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 3 through 21. You can follow along. I'll put the uh, pertinent verses up on slides so you can follow if you don't have your Bible with you today. Let's pray. Lord, we trust you and we love you. We love your word and we need it. We need it to feed us. We need it to prepare us for the days we have ahead, to equip us for right and honorable living, help our worship to be pure before you. Father, I pray this morning that you would help me to be true and clear and helpful as I preach this today for those whom I love, that they would be well served by this. Send your spirit, Lord, to equip us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 3 through 5 is where we're going to kick off today. Text says this. Then the commander, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So after the people were brought into exile in Babylon, of the Israelites, these Judahites that had been taken, four young men specifically were selected from the group. They were from the royal line of Judah. Judahite blood in their veins. They were selected for their pedigree and for their appealing attributes. Both physically and mentally, they were fit to stand in the king's palace. Last week I showed that many passages in the Old Testament, even all the way back to the days of Moses, explicitly prophesied this destruction that would happen and even the exile that would take place after. But this, too, was prophesied. I want to read for you way back uh, further in history, 2 Kings 20, 17 through 18. This is a few generations farther back in the days of King Hezekiah, prior to the destruction. The Lord says this, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Very clearly given to King Hezekiah, who's a Judahite, who would therefore have those in the line of Judah come after him. Those of your own line will be taken into the palace of the king of Babylon, and they shall be eunuchs. Daniel was very likely made a eunuch, which would also explain why there's no mention in the Bible of Daniel's lineage. He has no wife or children mentioned after this time, which would make sense. 
They were assigned food from the king's table. It was just kind of one quick line said here in verse 5, a daily portion to be given to them as part of their training. They were well taken care of, but even more to the point, that today's story is going to revolve around this circumstance, the fact that they were assigned food from his table. They were to be taught for three years in the ways of the Babylonians. This would be in the different subjects that mattered to them, uh, literature and history and mathematics and astrology, for sure, but also in their religious studies. Now, the ancient writer Plato writes that Persian youths were brought into their training at age 14 and for a similar period of about three years. So if we were to suppose that the Babylonians who preceded them operated under even similar practices, we may expect that Daniel is at least pretty close to that age, 14, 15 years old, when he's exiled and when he enters into the service of the king and his training. He'd wrap it up at about the age of 17. By the time we get to chapter 2, where his first main episode between him and the king will be about 17 years of age. This also gives us a bit of an indication of Daniel's lifespan. Because his final prophecies were received and recorded 70 years later when he was probably in his mid to late 80s. He lived a good long life in a foreign land. Continuing on to verses 6 and 7. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. So here are the players listed out. The names given, the first time they're mentioned in this book. And the names that they've been given by their lineage were names after God. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. Azariah means Yahweh has helped. All are common Hebrew names. In fact, they appear in other places in the Old Testament attributed to other people. Here, they're listed in alphabetical order in Hebrew. That's how they're listed. But Ashpenaz will give them new names. New names. The chief of the eunuchs, he gives them additional names that they will be referred to in that palace. The new names are not an uncommon idea in the Bible. In fact, all the way back to the Old Testament day, we would see this play out in many different stories. We'd see back to the days of Joseph. When he stood before Pharaoh, Pharaoh gave Joseph the new name, Zaphonath-Paneah. Joshua was not even originally named Joshua. His name was Hosea, and he was named by Hosea the name Joshua. Gideon, later in history, will be called by his people Jeroboam, one who contends with Baal. That's how he comes to be known. Even places in the Bible where God himself prescribes new names for people, like Abram becoming Abraham, Sarai becoming Sarah. Jesus himself renames Simon to Peter. The apostle Paul will take on the new name Saul, from Saul to Paul. That's probably more of a Hebrew and Greek type of thing. Nevertheless, there are many people in the Bible who have been given two names. And oftentimes, this giving of a new name symbolizes ownership. It symbolizes submission to a new authority and a new set of responsibilities. That's exactly what we're seeing going down here. 
For these young men, their names were changed from having a reference to the one true God to having references to the pagan gods of Babylon. So the parts of their names that were removed were the parts that referenced God of the Israelites. And the names that were added were Bel, Marduk, Aku, Nebu. They're false gods. It's a bit of foreshadowing of what's to come in this book and a reminder to these four young men that they're not in Kansas anymore. Moving on to verses 8 and 9. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. Daniel resolved. It was against God's law for the Hebrews to eat unclean meats like pork or even horse meat, which were regularly consumed by the Babylonians. Additionally, it was forbidden for a Hebrew to eat food sacrificed to pagan deities, which these most likely were. Wine, while not prohibited in the Old Testament law, was likely at least presumed to be dedicated to pagan gods. Now, the text doesn't mention those points specifically. Rather, it just expects the reader to know Hebrew law. So that's why I'm revisiting that for you, to know Daniel was resolved, not on a basis of opinion, but because he wouldn't dishonor the law of God. That word resolve is a powerful word. In Hebrew, it literally means to set his heart to something. The point is that Daniel was resolved to not eat the king's food. It ain't going to happen. Prior to any interaction with the eunuch, the chief eunuch here, or to the steward that will follow, or any interaction with the king himself, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel resolved, set his mind and his heart, that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So what did he do? He asked the chief eunuch to allow him to not defile himself. Because he'd made up his mind, he was willing to take action. It wasn't just a private endeavor. He was ready to press the issue. And note, while the resolve is only attributed to Daniel here, you notice this is very singular, Daniel had resolved. Daniel asked that he, singular language, might not have to defile himself. It quickly becomes clear that in this scene, Daniel is speaking on behalf of the other young men. It's actually kind of important. What we're going to see is that the singular to plural language is going to switch almost seamlessly. As though him speaking for himself as a Hebrew was therefore then applied to his fellow three brothers. And notice his request, that he would not defile himself. Daniel did not want there to be any confusion here over this being a mere preference, as though he were just a picky eater and didn't like meat and wine. He made it very clear right off the bat this was a religiously held conviction. Please do not make me defile myself. And what was Aspenaz's response? It was a willingness to negotiate with Daniel. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This could certainly have been considered an insolent request. What, you're too good for the king's food? Oh, all these other guys, it's okay with, for them, but not you? You're special, huh, Daniel? Try going to boot camp and requesting of your drill instructor, can I have the yogurt instead? Yeah, see how, see how that works out. 
could have landed Daniel in big trouble, but it didn't. Why? Because God gave Daniel favor and compassion. That's why. Because God extended a hand of mercy. God's sovereignty is often displayed in the stories of the Bible. He is sovereign even over, listen, the internal workings of the hearts and minds of mankind. You and I can pray that God would change a person's heart because he is sovereign even over our inner thoughts and attitudes. Think about this very practically. Just like this, if your boss were to require that you do something that was against your conscience, it's not over yet. God may give you favor or compassion in the sight of that boss. This should remind us that God is in full control of the events of this book, the events that it predicts, and even our lives today. Verse 10, And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So he was concerned that if he complied with Daniel's request, it would be detrimental to their training. You see, he was supposed to deliver the healthiest, wisest possible graduates at the end of this program. And this seemed to threaten the success of that endeavor. But it was not merely these Hebrews' health that worried Ashpenaz. He says, I fear my Lord. You would endanger my head with the king. Consider this. Among other things, this should remind us that King Nebuchadnezzar is a dictator. He might literally kill, behead his chief eunuch if these four young men appear to be in worse condition than their counterparts. And there's any question about that, later we will see this same Nebuchadnezzar give the order to execute all of the wise men in the land. That's the... That's the order given in the very next chapter. Nebuchadnezzar, to be sure, is a cruel and demanding tyrant. At least at this point in the story. But Daniel doesn't give up. This was the answer. He didn't receive reproval or admonishment. He got an answer. The answer was no. So look what he does in verses 11 through 13. Daniel doesn't give up. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. What an interesting statement. He has resolved not to defile himself. And when that request to not defile himself, failed. He didn't give up, but he tried another strategy. He sought out another person, and he tried a new tactic. This was actually very wise of this young teenager. Ten days was not long enough for any real harm to be done to a young man, but long enough for there to be an observable distinction between the four Hebrews and the others in this training program. It was a low-risk test. What was the result 
of the offer? As it says in the next couple of verses. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. The plan worked. Not only did the steward permit the test, but it was successful. I've heard of diets that Christians have tried to employ called the Daniel diet. Eat just vegetables and water. Well, for anyone doing that, as well as any of my vegetarian brothers and sisters in here, notice here that veggies make you fat. <laughs> just saying. Now, it should be noted, it doesn't seem that this vegetarianism persists. For these men, it probably only endured for the period that they were specifically being given that food from the king's table during their time of training. Uh, in fact, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 through 3 says this, In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. Seems to me this at least implies that wine and meat were a part of his regular diet by that time, and he was merely abstaining for them from them for those three weeks. But the point here is that God supernaturally cared for these men, supernaturally provided for these men. He gave them favor in the sight of the chief eunuch at first, and then eventually then the steward who permitted them in their menu request. And if there was any question as to whether or not this was God's doing, look at the rest of this chapter. Verse 17 says this, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found, like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. God gave them this blessing. All four were seen to be paragons of competency. Additionally, Daniel was given a special and unique gift understanding in all visions and dreams. We're going to cover a lot more of that in the upcoming chapters. But they were seen to be 10 times better than any of the other youths in the program. They had not merely beaten their contemporaries in the race, they had lapped them. Like Solomon before them, they were given great wisdom, great intellect, great aptitudes. And they were hard to mistake. This, of course, is a bit of foreshadowing of what will happen throughout the rest of the book. And we're going to see much more of these impressive young men in future chapters. They will all return multiple times, not only Daniel. But I want to close the rest of our time with two major points from this text that I think that we can see and apply even today. First point is this. You and I, like Daniel must resolve in our hearts 
to honor God in every area of our lives. We must resolve in our hearts to honor God in every area of our lives. That word resolve is a wonderful English word, isn't it? I think it needs to be revived in our day. To settle in one's mind, to be determined to an end, to have convictions backed by character and a willingness to suffer. There are things that you are going to have to face in your life at some point that are worth suffering for. And before that day of trial comes, you are going to have to settle in your mind to not dishonor God no matter the cost. How? First, by making sure it's a worthy cause. Second, by sticking to it. First, by making sure it's a worthy cause. Second, by sticking to it. If you're going to die on a hill, make sure it is a hill worthy of dying on. Now, I submit to you that there are three different biblically sanctioned categories of hills worthy of dying on. Category one hills are the Bible clear issues. These are the easiest. So if you ever face the temptation to commit adultery, it's very simple. Don't do it. We have clear and explicit verses. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Done. Easy. Not only that, there are inferences all over the Bible. The category one hills are the easiest to identify as hills worth dying on. But additionally, there are others. There are category two hills. These are issues necessarily inferred from the Bible. Those that are not explicitly stated in Scripture, but are concluded by other clear texts of Scripture. Necessary inference. For a positive example, the doctrine of the Trinity. It is not taught explicitly in any single verse in all of sacred Scripture. But there are many texts of Scripture from which we can deduce and must deduce the doctrine of the Trinity. And with enough certainty that it is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. That if you were to hear a pastor deny the Trinity, you should immediately remove him from his position and begin all the processes of church discipline. Necessary inference does not make it less of a hill to die on. It's just a different category. For a negative example, there is no one verse in the Bible that would forbid you from torturing puppies. But there are enough verses about compassion, righteous living, care of livestock, God's watchfulness over even animals, general kindness and propriety that necessarily infer that it would be wrong, sinful, to torture puppies. That's category two hills. Issues necessarily inferred from the Bible, and they are worthy of dying on. Category three hills. Conscience issues. The Bible explicitly teaches that there are unspecified matters in life that fall into this category. All you have to do is go to places like Romans chapter 14, 1 Corinthians 8 for a detailed breakdown of how the Apostle Paul commands that we are to honor these matters. I want to read for you just a part of Romans 14. 
One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let that sink in. <laughs> let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is fascinating if you think about it. It's amazing. Paul clearly says that it is not sinful for a Christian to eat meat. He doesn't say, well, it's not certain. He goes, it's certain. It is absolutely not sinful for a Christian to eat meat. However, even though there are not verses that demand you couldn't eat it, it tells the people to remain steadfast in their convictions, to hold to their conscience. In other words, he does not say, well, there aren't really any verses, so stop being so stubborn. He says, I'll, I'll go with you. I, I, I won't eat, eat meat with you. When, I, when I'm with you, I, I won't let it touch my lips because my love for you is greater than my desire to act upon that freedom. It's a powerful lesson. 1 Corinthians 8 says very much the same. Conscience issues are a genuine biblical category that may determine a hill as worthy of dying on. Hearing that? Conscience issues may absolutely be hills worthy of dying on. All three category hills, clear Bible, necessary inference, conscience, convictions, are worth suffering over. And once you've identified the issue as worthy of suffering, stick to it. Don't budge. If it really is true, if it really is something to be resolved over, stick to it. So often, people, even Christians today, draw a line, they're tough, and then they move it. When the battle starts, well, I, I, I meant here. Uh, how about here? Guys, that's a, that's a quick way to make a weak conscience. To atrophy these spiritual muscles that God has given you. Don't be like that. Don't play chicken with the world. They will call your bluff every time, eventually. Daniel and his companions, they were men of conviction. They were not bluffing. They were not bluffing. In later chapters, all four of these men individually will have the opportunity to prove that when they are resolved to do what is right, they are willing to die for it. Think of how easy it could have been for Daniel to just have said, uh, well, this is an extreme situation. It's an exception to the rule, obviously. Surely the Lord would not judge us for eating the king's meat and wine. Think of how much better we could serve God's people if we just simply went against our conscience and consented to this menu. Who would have judged Daniel for that? Don't do this. It will weaken your conscience muscles. Those need to remain strong for the day of trial. Hebrews 13, 18. We concluded Hebrews just several weeks ago. At the end of that book, we saw this. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. 
It is on the basis of their conscience being clear that they are crying out for prayers. Listen, we know we have not defied our conscience. If we felt something was right, we did it. If we felt something was wrong, we didn't. So we can stand before you today and say, pray for us. We are not needing to repent of open sins that we haven't acknowledged and dealt with. But there's something else to consider here. Imagine what would have happened if Daniel, Daniel had set his heart and even made the request, but the other three didn't have his back. I want you to imagine what would have happened. At the very least, it would have dramatically undermined his position and may have even led to harsher penalties for Daniel. Can you imagine what that would have I cannot defile myself against my God. And the other three are like, uh, we, we will. Our God doesn't care. He's, I, don't, I, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what he's doing. Christians, even if you do not personally have certain convictions about things, if your brothers and sisters in Christ do, then what you choose to do could very likely result in grave consequences for them. What you do and what you approve of as a believer will impact your brothers and sisters in Christ. Deviate with care. Be thoughtful about the places where you will act on distinctive convictions. Sometimes Christians must resolve, resolve to stand together even in areas where we don't all share the same degree of conviction. I'll say that again. Sometimes Christians must resolve to stand together even in areas where we don't all share the same degree of conviction. Imagine the football team taking the field, the play is called, a handful of players disagree with the call as they break from the huddle. And the lineman goes, well, I was not going to block for that one. I'm not going to run hard for that one. I just don't think it's a good play. If you're on the same team, you need to come together when the time arises. When you're at war and the commanders have determined to take that hill, you don't go, I'm not doing it. Let them go. This doesn't happen all the time, but there may be occasion, brothers and sisters, where you will need to hear out the convictions of others who have either a conviction you don't have or a degree of that conviction you don't share and come together with them. Which brings me to COVID vaccines. The elders at the Mission Church believe that vaccines generally and more specifically, this COVID vaccine, not the same issue, mind you, are matters of conscience. Each one must be fully convinced in his own mind. I don't have a verse. There are plenty of faithful believers who love the Bible, submit to King Jesus, and have no moral objection to getting this COVID vax. None. It's not a conscience issue for them. They don't see it as a category one, two, or three hill. They may even want to get it. 
On the other hand, there are faithful believers who love the Bible, submit to King Jesus, who have profound moral objections with the COVID vaccine. Profound ones. They could not get the COVID vaccine with the clear conscience. They couldn't do it. It would be defiling to them. It is at least a category three hill for them. All Christians should be able to agree that this is not a category one hill. You're not going to find the word vaccine in the Bible, so that's a simple one. There's nothing in Scripture that one Christian could use to bind the conscience of another Christian regarding this vaccine. No one Christian can charge another Christian with sin for either getting it or not getting it. Practically speaking, some of you have gotten it or plan to or are willing to. Others of you haven't and are resolved to not get it. And wherever you land, you ought not feel any judgment from your brothers and sisters in Christ on this. Certainly not from your fellow pastors. We had a meeting not long ago. I walked through this with everybody to make sure we were on the same page. We were on exactly the same page. You sure? Am I missing anything? Nope. We're totally together. Now, this is not the same thing is saying that there ought not be brotherly and perhaps lively discussion over this matter. Okay? You should feel free to debate as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not passing judgment on another to try to convince him to agree with your position. This is very important. The world doesn't have this category any longer. Have you noticed? They don't have this category. But Christians, we should model this. A kind of discussion. I think you're wrong. Let me try to show you. We can do that in a brotherly, sisterly way, in great kindness. However, however, because no one can bind another's conscience on this, all Christians should be resolvedly opposed to vaccine mandates. All Christians should be resolvedly opposed to vaccine mandates. To legally mandate this vaccine would be abominable. No Christian should agree with a COVID vaccine mandate. None. Do you understand what a legal mandate is? It means that eventually mothers and fathers will be separated from their children if they do not comply. Eventually, men with guns will come to homes of people who convictionally exercise their conscience issues to resist the vaccine. And those men will knock down their doors and take them to prison. If it continues, there will eventually be bloodshed over this issue. If a Christian were to approve of a vaccine mandate, he or she would be rejecting the Bible's clear teaching that issues of conscience must be permitted. If you find yourself disagreeing with the conviction of your brother and sister, don't you dare go get the civil magistrate to make them agree with you. Shame on the brother or sister in Christ who dares to do that thing. 
even if the anti-COVID-vax Christian is wrong? What if they're wrong? What if it's totally safe and it's a good thing for culture? And so what if that's the case? What if they simply just have a weak conscience? They're uninformed. They don't have knowledge. Literally read 1 Corinthians 8, Romans 14. The Bible explicitly states that to demand those Christians to deny their conscience on this account would be, quoting 1 Corinthians 8 here, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. There are many civil, social, constitutional reasons that we should resist a mandate. None of those have the full authority of the Word of God, as this does. It would be sin for a government to mandate this of those who are convicted otherwise. The world has absolutely lost its mind over COVID. Their religiously obsessive fear has whipped them into a maniacal frenzy. And the only thing that makes them more uncontrollably distraught than their fear of COVID is that you and I won't join them in their panic. I will not worship at that altar. But the way that we resist this, brothers and sisters, the way matters. The ends do not justify the means. This brings me to the second point. Have a right and godly attitude about civil disobedience. Have a right and godly attitude about civil disobedience. I want you to note Daniel's disposition. Did you notice in verse 8? He had already resolved one thing. He would not defile himself. He had determined it to be religiously objectionable. He had set his heart and his mind. It was not happening. Later he'll prove. In the lion's den account, his three with him, Hananiah, Ezra, and Mishael, they'll all prove in the fiery furnace account. They are all willing to die to do what is right, to stand by their convictions. And yet, what did Daniel do? He requested that he not defile himself. He did not start making demands like a stubborn and foolish rebel. Huh, huh, you think you can tell me what to eat, right? Hmm. That wasn't Daniel. We ought not think that when kings, chief eunuchs, overreach, the only right response is rebellious attitudes. We seek peaceful ways to deal with these issues. You and I may resolve to not dishonor God. We must resolve to not dishonor God. No matter what a civil authority says, no matter what an employer says, and still do so in a way that honors the Lord's command to be submissive in our relationship with our authorities. That can be done. And it ought to be. 
I'm going to read a paraphrase here from a commentator, Stephen Miller, on this exact passage. They disagreed in an agreeable fashion. It began with a request. Please do not ask me to do what is counter to my religious conviction. I'm asking you. And when that didn't work, he continued to attest. Went to another guy and... Okay. Seriously, we can't do this, so test us. Watch. What happens? You and I need to know it doesn't always work out like it does in this story. It is not always in God's will for his people to be thought well of by those around them. God does not always give us favor in the eyes of our kings, our employers. Consider Jesus. Consider his statements about the world hating his disciples. Even consider one of Daniel's contemporaries, Jeremiah. He was the one who prophesied, one of, one of the prophets that prophesied this destruction was going to come. And he was persecuted on every side by his own people. It may be God's will that you stand strong on things like this and that it would lead to your suffering. That may be God's will for you to lose your job. It may be God's will for you to go to jail. It may be God's will for you to suffer all manner of penalties for honoring him. And this is how we will display our love for the word, our trust in King Jesus. You and I are to live lives that honor God. And we are to leave how others think about it up to him. The world is going to look at us and see us as enemies. And if it's not for COVID vax mandates, if it's not for religious freedom in America, if it's not for those types of things, they'll find something else. Don't you see? This is a war against King Jesus. That's what this is. All of these wars are ultimately at the bottom. Wars against Christ and his righteous rule and reign. And you and I are to see even the acts of civil disobedience, if it were to come to that, and it is probably coming to that, as submission to our God. It is a cheerful resistance. It is a resolve with a smile. We will not spew vile words at you if you disagree. Just last week, my wife posted something on social media about vax mandates. She's like, it shouldn't be mandated. All American, just be an American, you should not want this to go down. Tens of thousands of replies on that thing. Um, multiple death threats to my family. Words that should never be spoken aimed at my wife and my kids. People wanting us to die. People calling my wife a murderer because she doesn't think things should be mandated. Brothers and sisters, we ought to expect that folly from the world and not turn back around and revile when we are reviled. Why? King Jesus didn't. You see, all of us are sinners, and we have that in our hearts. We do, don't we? I saw some of that vitriol spewed at my wife. I got a teensy bit angry. And I had ideas in mind of what I'd want to type back and shout back and say back and who I'd want to hunt down and might have some friends in the military who could still find addresses associated with some of those 
post. But that wouldn't honor the Lord. That sin, you see, is in my heart, just like it's in yours, because all of us were born sinners. We have that in us, just like the world has that in them. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. No, not one. None of us goes, we are the righteous. They are the wicked. In and of ourselves, our nature is sin too. We are deserving of the just wrath of God. We are deserving of judgment in hell for eternity because of our treason against Lord Jesus. But God in his infinite wisdom, grace, and goodness sends his son to live on this earth righteously and perfectly. And he was reviled against far worse than any of us could be reviled against. And none of it was true. And Jesus went to the cross and he bore the wrath of God on behalf of anyone who will ever believe in him. So that if you repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus, you'll be saved. You can have eternal life. And you can join that side of the battle where we, like our Christ, must not revile when reviled against. He deserves his good praise and worship from lips that don't shout slanderous accusations and vitriol and expletives at the world and then turn in praise to him. If you've not repented of your sin and turned in faith to the Lord Jesus, you need to do that today. You need to believe on him for salvation. You need to give your life over to him. You need to turn from the folly of the world and obey everything that he has commanded. And he'll be with you to the very end of the age. Join us in our disciple-making, kingdom-building endeavors to his glorious grace and for our joy. Brothers and sisters, we need to be resolved with a smile. In upcoming weeks, I hope to be very practical. We're going to talk about many more things that we may have to face in our future. All types of things that are going on in the world today that all of us will have to face. This is a little bit unique. It's not very common that the things that are in the general news cycle will genuinely affect 100% of the people in a congregation and in a nation. But that's the way things are aiming. And so we're going to seek wisdom from the Word of God, and I'm going to seek wisdom from the Lord to try to help apply those things to what's going on right now. Um, We don't obey the world's demands that we may not talk about politics. Who said that? Certainly not Jesus. So we're going to try to deal with things as we see as right. Please pray for me and the elders here at our church that will honor what the Word says, never leading people astray, stand strong on convictions that are founded on the Word, and that we'll we'll become experts at identifying the hills worthy of dying on and those that aren't. Because if bloodshed is in the future, if suffering is in the future, if struggle and strife for believers is in the future, it ought not be for unworthy things. Let's pray. Lord, we are committed to your word. Help us to learn the kind of resolve that Daniel and his fellow Hebrews had. Help us to learn how to identify what is worthy to be resolved over. Help us to be so eager to not judge brothers and sisters in Christ and even the world for things that aren't laid out in Scripture, necessarily inferred. Father, we need help in doing this. It takes wisdom in this. It takes great care in doing this. I I pray very clearly, Lord, that that the the vaccine, get it and don't get it types of things that could enter into a church, that we would be protected from that. That my brothers and sisters who get it will not judge those who don't. And those who don't will not judge those who get it. Father, I pray that that would be the case. I think, I think that's the honoring approach here. But Lord, I think we can all be quite certain 
that your Bible tells us to not give up our freedoms to the world because we must not become slaves of men once we've been set free. Lord, I pray that you would help us to apply that rightly. Help us to see with a focus and with a razor-sharp clarity so that we can stand right where we ought to and we can honor you. So Lord, we ask for you to help us, give us wisdom and clarity as we move into this series and pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.